Well, good morning, everyone. Really glad that you're uh, here this morning. Uh, for you who made it with children with no uh, <laughs> wives, God bless you. I did it with only the help with my uh, mother-in-law. So uh, props to my mother-in-law, who is here this morning, who helped me. Well, we're now our s- in our second week in a very uh, difficult and also uh, important topic called the Big D, We Need to Talk. Back on February 15th, we were about two-thirds the way through our series in Mark, meeting Jesus for the first time and meeting him all over again. And there in Mark 10, Jesus was teaching us as a community on what discipleship really meant, how following Jesus changes relationships with ourselves and and God and others, and then it happened. Uh, The D word came up, divorce. Well, a chill sort of went through the air. I started getting calls and emails and personal conversations with other pastors, elders, and many of you. Uh, Would we address divorce from the front? What was our perspective? People were excited and honestly fearful. You see, all of us, if we're honest, have been touched by this. Either we've been through a divorce ourselves, we instigated a divorce, we are children of divorce, or we all, I think, have friends and family that have gone through or are going through this very painful reality. I know when this topic uh, comes up, when it's even mentioned, all sorts of thoughts and emotions and ideas burst forth. It's like picking a scab, things like fear, uh, anger, relief, pain, unforgiveness, and uh, betrayal come up, lost dreams. And then, John, when you add God and church, the tension and questions get ratcheted right up. Some of you are thinking, oh my goodness. This is my first time to church ever, or I haven't been here in years, and this is the topic I get? Others of you want to get up and run. This is too painful. This is too, too close to home, and you really don't want to be here right now. Yet, like I said that following week in the Mark series, when we were announced we were going to take some real time to deal with this, and, and Dave said it last week too, we don't ever need to fear God. God is good, and in the next few weeks, he's going to speak to us with hope and grace and truth. So for the next few weeks, we're going to walk through what the Bible really says, deal with some of the questions many of us have never had answered, talk about how we support friends and family after they've gone through divorce, and see if there is any real Christian hope in the midst of tragedy. Some of you are going to find freedom in this series that Dave started last week. Some of you are actually going to get convicted. All of us, I hope, are going to get clarity. Now, let me just say this. Let's make an agreement not to disappear from church over the next four weeks. Let's be here. Many of us fear this topic, but we as a family need to understand that we have to struggle with this prayerfully, respectfully, realizing that if we are Christians or if we are checking out Christianity, Jesus is not just Savior to us. He is Lord also. We need the reign and rule of Jesus in this part of our life and our thinking also. Why don't you take a moment? I'm going to pray because of the nature of this topic. Just everyone close their eyes and you at home watching or listening do the same with me. God, we come to you right now. And to be honest, some of us right now are are absolutely fearful uh, what's going to be said. Others of us right now are struggling with anger. Others, unforgiveness. Others of us are just interested Well, no matter who we are, my prayer is simple this morning. Jesus, help us to hear clearly. Help us to see clearly. Help us to know your heart. And we pray that that prayer you taught us to pray. Not our will, but your will be done in our lives as you've ordained in heaven. And all God's people said, amen. Okay. 
Let's start with some needed background. Number one, marriage is amazing and marriage is hard. If you're married, would you agree with that? Yeah, okay. We have conflicting... Yes, that's true. Okay. We have conflicting needs, desires. We need patience and mutual sacrifice, uh, discipline and fidelity. Marriage is an amazing gift, but marriage also is a fragile gift. And that's played out in our modern reality called North American culture. Divorce is very commonplace today. The statistical truth is that between 40 and 50 percent, that's one out of two marriages, will end up in divorce. By the way, that grows with subsequent marriages. If you're in your second marriage, the divorce rate rises to 60%. If you're in your third marriage, it rises to 75%. Dave and I were on Canada Statistics this week, and amazingly, did you know that every year in our nation, there are 70,000 divorces? Every year, 70,000 families implode. Every year, 70,000, 140,000 people's lives begin to separate. And then there's children and the economics and the pain, and it goes on and on every year. Now, what we're experiencing today, by the way, in the West is unparalleled in human history. So, John, let's ask the question, why is this happening this way? Well, beyond the issue of sin and struggle, there are six major reasons we need to start with. First, believe it or not, is life expectancy. In 1850, the expectancy in North America was 40 years or less. Raise your hand if you're already dead. (laughs) Raise it high. Wow, glory, glory, you're in glory. Okay, think about that. In 1850, 40 was really old. Now, in 1900, the same statistic as this, whites, it was 50, and non-whites, it was 35 years old. We are living longer than we used to, which adds now new strains and questions we have not faced in marriage for a very long time. Second, there are new demands on marriage that weren't as prevalent in the past. In the past, marriage was about economics. It was about children, work, agriculture. We don't like hearing that, but it's true. Yet we've now moved marriage, listen, from being the foundational unit of economic sort of work, production, to now being the foundational unit of economic consumption. See, what the deal is this, we've turned marriage, and it's okay, but we've turned marriage into something called companionship. Now, the other past factors are not as central as they used to. As Dave said last week, the greatest reason for marriage breakup is unfulfilled expectations. In this time, in our culture, we have, here's the word, the luxury to have all sorts of expectations, right and wrong, which in the past we may have had, but we never got to talk about because we were either working or already dead. It's true. Here's the third thing. There's sexual heat. We live in a culture that lifts up youth and vigor and sex appeal, which constantly attacks any marriage. The call to embrace the invented, the airbrushed, the fantasy, which on the surface always looks better than the reality of the day-to-day. All of this, the internet and all we see in magazines, pushes us away from our spouse who's getting, well, older, more wrinkled, and sagging, right? That's truth. What we see in the reality of life and what we see out there is very different. Also, here's the fourth thing. Our culture has moved away from lifelong relationships and commitments. Permanence has now moved to short, mobile, immediate life, which plays out in our marriage. We treat everything like our BlackBerry or iPhone. 
Instant Twitter, I'm out. That's how we live. Now, this week in the Toronto Star, I was given an article called, ready? The marriage deal is a fixed term better, question mark. Listen, this is how it goes. Do you expect your marriage to last forever? Maybe that's the problem. Imagine if marriage had term limits. Imagine if marriage was not steeped in all those romantic ideals, but was based on something like a business contract. Imagine if wedding vows sounded like this. Remember, this is the Toronto Star last week. Uh, To have and to hold from this day forward, remember holding the hands, for the next 60 months, some terms and conditions apply. That's what an Australian marketing expert really proposed last week. We have fixed-term contracts for buying property, cars, and insurance, but there's only one contract for marriage, and it's for life. Maybe it's time to consider a fixed-term marriage contract. See, he writes, since divorce rates are skyrocketing, we should remove all that till-death-do-us-part pressure. Then we could create a no-fault system in which marriage just becomes another five year contract. If you remain in love with your spouse after tying a partial knot, no problem. Uh, Just renew it at the date. And if you begin to believe your spouse was the biggest mistake of your life, no big deal at all. You can bid adieu when your contract expires. Getting married, he writes, would be like leasing a car. If you were expecting a luxury sedan but drove away with a rusting lemon, you could take it back to the dealership and find another rod on the road to life. Now, the guy who wrote this article was quoting another author. He thinks this is crazy. The reason why I bring this up is it shows how we've moved from permanence to mobility. Well, there are also two other major reasons. There's a lack of role models. Listen closely. Divorce breeds divorce. Divorce breeds divorce. Fewer people have long-term marriages in families, let alone with those who influence our culture like the rich and famous And lastly, and most importantly, is the change towards women. See, divorce in the past was a male-dominated thing. It was almost never allowed for women, and if women did it, it was a huge disgrace. One ethicist, Stanley Grenz, wrote this, The divorced person, especially the divorced woman, is no longer viewed in the negative light in the degree that predominated earlier. Now she's economically independent, which was not the case in previous eras. The result of these changes in attitudes and status have been nothing but phenomenal. Women are now less likely to remain in an abusive situation or in marriages where their needs are not being met. This is the reality of why modern divorce, good and bad, all in between, is taking place. But then we get to church, and then many of us have experienced how churches deal with this, sort of two extremes, right? For many, divorce is taboo, and if you've been divorced, you become ostracized in the local church. You feel like a second-class Christian, or sometimes you wonder if people think if you're a Christian at all. And then there's the other extreme in some other churches where divorce is, well, just treated casually. It's de facto. And when you confront them, they throw Jesus' words back in your face. Uh, Don't judge me or you'll be judged too. They forget the original context is if you judge, you'll be liable to the judgment of God. Oops. What people really mean is if you don't judge me, I won't judge you. Let's live and, and let live. See, the first is truth without grace. The second is grace without truth. And let me say this strongly. God hates both of those opinions. They do not reflect scripture, church tradition, or the heart of our living God. So let's go and find out what the Bible really says about divorce and remarriage. 
and see over the next few weeks what we learn and what God is saying to us. The foundational verse before we get to Jesus, because we're going to hang out with Jesus today on the issue, is found in Malachi 2.16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Let me say it again. I hate divorce. Well, that's as plain as it gets. God hates divorce. Not the people that get divorced, but he hates the act of divorce. By the way, this is not just some moral statement. It's emotional. God says this because, ready? He himself has been through this with his own people. Did you know that the God you worship has been divorced and remarried? We'll talk about that in three weeks. God hates this. I think one wrote it best when he said, divorce in the Bible is permitted only because of people's sin. Since divorce is only a concession of people's sin and is not part of God's original plan for marriage, all believers should hate divorce like God hates divorce and only pursue it when there is no other recourse. Then he writes, with God's help, a marriage can survive well the worst of sins. Now the teaching of Jesus out of the Old Testament into the New focuses in four passages. Mark chapter 10, that's where we first read about this in our last series. Then in Luke 16, and then there's another reference in Matthew 5. It's in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. And the last one is in Matthew 19. We're going to be in Matthew 19, so if you have a Bible, turn there, because this is the most extensive of all four passages, and we're going to hang out there today. Matthew 19, one reads like this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Now Jesus comes to the other side of the Jordan. He heals and again by these actions he proclaims that the kingdom of God is present. Word and deed are pointing to the death of the kingdom of darkness. Yet do not miss this. The geography is pointing to something that a lot of time we miss. This was the ministry territory, ready? Of his cousin, John the Baptist, who has just been murdered, beheaded. Now, what was the chief reason for John's murder? He was speaking out against what? Divorce among the elite. In Matthew 14, it reads like this. Now, Herod had arrested John the Baptist and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. John, on behalf of God himself, with the authority of Scripture, cried out that the king of God's people was sinning and he just didn't care. No matter one's title, no matter one's authority, calling or lifestyle, all would be given this radical call to repentance. Now, in the case of King Herod, he had married his brother's wife while his brother was still alive. Well, you say, well, John, what's, what's the big deal? Let me explain. See, the first person she married was her uncle, problem number one. Then she leaves Philip for her other uncle, problem number two. This is like Jerry Springer all over again. No, true. And, and, then, and then John the Baptist comes and says, this is wrong. He doesn't even address the uncle and all this. No, no. He just says, her union with you is wrong because you're not allowed to actually have her because your brother is still alive. The scriptures, Leviticus 18, forbids what you're doing, let alone the uncle thing. Well, he points it out, and he's killed for it. He's killed for it. Now, Jesus comes to the same area, and as he's walking over a hill, another group of religious leaders decide to trap Jesus. As they see him approaching, one says to the other, well, we need to get rid of this guy. How can we do it? One looked up, a smile on his face. Divorce, 
he said. Let's see where he goes with this. And if we're actually blessed today and and favored, maybe like his cousin, this can get him killed too. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, saw through the trap, but also his heart would have broken as he would review all the pain that had happened and would happen because of the tragedy called divorce. Some Pharisees came to to test him, verse 3. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Don't miss what they just said. For any and every reason. So, can I get rid of my wife, Jesus, because, and just fill in the blank? See, at this time, there were two religious views with the Pharisees. This is important for this whole conversation. Two views. The first one was, you could only get divorced if there was sexual infidelity. The second was another group under a teaching named Hillel, who said divorce could happen anytime for anything. He taught that if a wife actually spoiled a dish for the husband, or if, this is an exact quote, or if he found another more beautiful than she, you can say, bye, bye, bye. So which school was Jesus with? They wait and see. They stop to look. What would the wandering prophet say? Jesus responds to them, just like he did the devil in the wilderness. He spoke to him with the embodied truth, the word of God that transcends culture and ideas, philosophy, and current opinion. He looks at them, listen, knowing they don't really even care about the issue. I mean, the sin, right? The pain, the deep questions that come from divorce, the broken people in the wake of lost dreams and hopes. See, they want to fight with Jesus over what's allowable. Jesus goes to what is desirable. Have you not read, verse 4, that at the beginning the Creator made them both male and female, and for this reason a man will leave his mom and dad and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no person separate. See, Jesus, I love this, goes behind the trap and the scribal debate of the time, to God's will. He trumps scripture with scripture. He quotes Genesis 2.24. It's the summary of God's plan for humanity. Humans, he says, are created male and female. They are meant for each other. Marriage is a permanent bond only, there it is, only between a man and woman, and that new union is consecrated by something called sex, intercourse. God hates divorce because it tears apart and ultimately severs what should be a permanent union. He reminds them that two will become one flesh. They are no longer two but one. Sex, by the way, let me just say this, is not just getting it on, though that's fun and good. And all marriages must have a fun, amazing, strong sex life. Yes, you heard it at church. And if you are married, you should be having more sex. You should be. God invented this. It binds us together. It's fun. Our boss is a great inventor. And by the way, it keeps things balanced. But he says, you know, it's more than that. Uh, One wrote this, sexual intercourse in marriage is not just about satisfaction of an individual's appetite like eating. It's more. It actually links two persons together. It actually symbolizes what it affects. And it affects what it symbolizes. Thus, the sexual union between a man and woman in marriage creates an indissolvable bond. Two will become one. Two will become one. Where was the last time we heard some concept like that? Uh, Oh, right. God himself. God is one God found in three persons eternally, yet he is one God. See, sex between a husband and wife is the closest thing we have to sort of understanding God's own self-relationship. So you go, well, that's weird. John and so who cares? Well, let me tell you. 
What, saying, what Jesus is saying is, marriage is God-ordained, God is the one who does the joining, and since it reflects in some way God himself, to break this is very, very, very serious. See, God is the one that brings us together. It is us in a sinful state that does the separating. See, to see divorce as a Christian, as people undoing the work of God, puts the issue into a radical new perspective. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to point out to these so-called religious leaders. Well, they're not impressed. And they're not done. So they say back to Jesus, well, fine. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her on her way? Well, they're quoting Deuteronomy 24. It reads like this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Now, hold on. What does indecent mean? Well, that's where the two schools of the day were fighting. Some thought indecent just meant sexual misconduct. Others thought, anything I feel like today. Isn't that nice for the men, eh, women? Yeah, I don't, I'm out. So Jesus says, hmm, that's an interesting quote. And by the way, before we get to Jesus' response, let's get back to the three reasons why Moses gave this in the first place. Because the guys at that time were forgetting. Moses did this for three reasons. Number one, to protect the sanctity of marriage from something that would defile it. Second, even more important, ready? to actually protect the woman from a husband who might simply just send her away without any cause. And third, and most important, it was actually to document, you've got to document, a document her status as a legitimately divorced woman so she would not be accused of being what? A prostitute or an adulteress. You go, well, why is that important? Let me tell you why. Because at that time in history, if you were caught in adultery, or prostitution. What happened to you? You were stoned to death. So this was Moses actually instituting women's rights. How amazing. And when you got that certificate of divorce, it also said right on it, you were allowed to legitimately, here it is, remarry. So Moses is protecting the sanctity of marriage and making sure there won't be massive breakdown. So they come, they misquote it and say to Jesus, well, hey, Moses commanded this, and and by the way, let me say that again, it was Moses who commanded it. It, It's a power play, name-dropping on the highest scale. Well, Jesus says this was no command. It was a concession. Moses did not command it. He allowed it. The Pharisees took this as a positive thing. Jesus points out rightly it was a concession because of one thing, sin. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because Your hearts were hard. Speaking to the men, by the way. Your hearts were hard. This is not the way it was from the beginning. See, anytime a marriage goes south, it's a sign of sin. Something has gone terribly wrong. Divorce is never a neutral option. And it was done, he says, because you had a hard heart. You weren't loving. You weren't patient, gentlemen. You were not forgiving. And by the way, you were most definitely not other-centered. Jesus hits the real reason in the middle of the discussion. Hardness of heart. The same language used for Pharaoh in the Exodus. Then again, he says these words. Listen closely. It was not like this from the beginning. Jesus again goes back to Genesis. He appeals behind Moses. He trumps scripture with scripture. And then he says this, key words for us today. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, marital unfaithfulness, I know this is much more of a a teaching moment. The word marital unfaithfulness in Greek is porneia. What word do you think in English we get from porneia? Anyone? 
And people are like, I can't say that in church. Pornography. Yeah, pornography. That's where we get our modern word pornography from. There are four meanings for porneia in the Bible. One of them is to worship idols. But there are three that are sexual. The first one is this, adultery. To have a romantic and or a sexual relationship with a married man or woman who is not your lawful spouse. Porneia. Number two is this. It's called betrothal breakdown. Say it with me. Betrothal breakdown. Now this is what this means. In Jewish culture, when you were engaged, you were also married. You were married. And, and, and so if a husband found out that his wife was already pregnant or was not a virgin, he could divorce her because she had violated that. Now you go, where have I heard that before? Jesus' birth. Uh, Joseph, Joseph comes to Mary, and, and Mary's found with child, and it says that Joseph was a what? Righteous man. And he didn't want to publicly disgrace Mary. And so he decided to what? Divorce her quietly. Pornea. Now, we know the scriptures tell us she had not committed pornea, but that gives us a glimpse into that culture. But the third and most important is this. It basically is any illicit sexual physical action. It's where we get the word fornication from. It involves incest, homosexuality, lesbianism, prostitution, molestation, bestiality. The word really communicates a violation of the covenant of companionship found in marriage through the introduction, here it is, of a third party, no matter what that party is. The third party becomes the companion usually, although not always, in a sexual relationship. The catchphrase word, porneia, really comes from some passages in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, and and you can put that up, is this huge passage that tells us everything we should not do. It says, don't sleep with a relative. Don't sleep with your aunt. Don't sleep with your uncle. Don't sleep with your stepsister. Don't sleep with your half-sister. Don't sleep with your mother. Don't sleep with your father. And list all these things. It says, do not sleep as a man sleeps with a man. As a, do not sleep as a man, with a man as a man lays with a woman. And it says, do not also lay with animals. It also says, do not worship foreign gods. This is where the word porneia originates from. So all of these acts are porneia and violate the covenant you have with your spouse. If a partner does this, they sin against God, themselves, and their spouse. Jesus says you are allowed to divorce if your partner got involved in these sexual actions. See, they break the bonds, the trust, the agreement of the two becoming one flesh. Like Moses, Jesus allows for some hardness of heart, but then don't miss it. This is important, everyone. He also allows for remarriage. It's right in the exception. One, he says, ready, thinking caps, one commits adultery according to Jesus if remarriage occurs when pornea is not present. But if pornea is present, remarriage is allowed. Let me say that again. One commits adultery according to Jesus if remarriage occurs when pornea is not present. But if it is present, remarriage is allowed. Even the certificates of divorce at this time talk about remarriage. That's why Jesus would say what he did in verse 9. And if you have time today, go back to Matthew 5, where he talks this also through. He says in verse 32, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. The exception is found in porneia for Jesus. Remember that. See, the innocent party, or we should say, look, 
the more innocent party, we know it takes two to tango, has the right to remarry because the marriage is broken, and when divorce happens, the marriage is dissolved in God's eyes. The purpose of biblical divorce is to make clear that the faithful partner is free to remarry. It follows the very same teaching of Paul in Romans about the death of a spouse. When a spouse dies and they get remarried, there is no sin because in God's eyes, it's a new union. The same is here. Now, I'm going to stop right there. That's where we're going to stop. I'm going to walk through some things we've learned today and some questions and then summarize for the next few weeks. So follow along. Number one, marriage is the highest form of human, not contract, covenant. We should fight for our marriages, we who are married. We should see them through heaven's eyes, not just like modern legal contracts. They're the will of God and are supposed to be permanent, lifelong, and here it is, if you're a Christian, acts of worship. Paul says marriage is a living symbol of God in the church founded on mutual submission. That's why in Ephesians 5 it would say, Wives, submit your husbands as the Lord. Submission does not mean domination. Submit yourself as husbands to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ is the head of the church, the body for which he is Savior. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul uses the relationship of the whole holy church and God in the marriage idea. It elevates it to such a height. We need to understand that it is the highest form of human covenant. We as Christians support marriage not because of politics. Forget all the stuff you hear on the internet and on the television, even from some Christians. We support it because it's God-designed, and God loves a marriage. Number two, though, divorce is allowed for followers of Jesus in cases of sexual misconduct. Though all divorce is a result of sin, ready? Not all divorce is sinful. Can I say that again? Though all divorce is a result of sin, not all divorce is sinful. The goal was to give people freedom not to be bound in dangerous or wrong situations. Three, John, uh, we're together, but we're not divorced yet. But do I have to take my spouse back if they've broken faith through sexual infidelity? See, whenever possible, listen closely, please. Whenever possible, reconciliation is the primary motivation behind our actions towards those who have done great harm to us. I mean, what did Jesus say to us? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. As Jesus forgave us as Christians, we are also called to forgive. So we should see if there is any possibility to reconcile, and here it is, and see God work miracles. But as a last resort, if there is no repentance and the marriage has died, then God gives us holy permission. Still, let me say this again. Never stop asking God for a miracle. That is his business. You need to start praying for the power to forgive, the power to love again, the power to talk. And Wayne and I were talking this week, and and he was right. He said, remind them that it's going to take a long time to learn how to love, a long time to learn how to trust again. It doesn't happen overnight. I used to say this with teenagers. As a youth pastor, I used to say all the time, when Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus didn't just show up. God believes in time. That's exactly what is preached by Christ even. It's going to take time. Uh, Number four, well, John, what if I got divorced and or even got remarried and it was wrong? So there's a lot of you listening that are divorced and remarried. You're Christians, and you're saying, well, it wasn't done right. 
So here's the question that I've heard before, or someone's even told me. Am I an eternal adulterer? No. God comes to us and says one thing. Repent. Admit you sinned. And once you admit you sinned, there is forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. Don't make excuses with God. Just be honest with God. I sinned. And God promises like all sin, he will what? Forgive you. And if you're already married again, listen closely. If you're married again, then stay in the marriage and actually dedicate it to God. Nowhere in Scripture do we have any weird teaching that you have to break up a current marriage to go back to another marriage. Forget that. That is never said in Scripture. The marriage you are in now, if you are married, dedicate it to God and don't become one of those 60 or 75% statistics. Number five, reconciliation. If the divorce was wrong and the former spouse is able or willing, then repair what is broken. A Christian should hesitate to enter into another marriage quickly if there is a possibility to see the breach healed. With, God in, with God's involvement, never discount, I love this, the resurrection from the dead. For all you know, maybe Jesus wants to commit a Lazarus act on your dead, stinking marriage four days later. And suddenly, what is dead and people are weeping over and it's rotting in the grave, Jesus may come and say, come forth and you will see restoration, and you will have testimony that very few have. Don't rush into a new marriage. Stop and wait. Get prayer. See a pastor, an elder. Go to the counseling center. Use God's wisdom in his word and in this family to see what he's saying to you. Number six, what if I got divorced before I was a Christian? Uh, What do I say then? Well, God wipes the slate clean when a sinner accepts Christ and begins Christian living. We are called new creatures. What happened before you met Jesus, though significant, is not held against you in any way. It's a new start. You have a new standing with Christ. All your past sins have been wiped away. Now, I want to stop right here and say this is only part one. There are so many more questions and thoughts and ideas. Well, John, what about abandonment? And, and what about abuse? And wonder if I'm married to a non-Christian or maybe I want to become a Christian, but, and the list goes on and on. Next week, we're going to look at what Paul says because he deals with different issues than Jesus does. Then Wayne and I are going to spend some time asking, what can we do to truly support and hear God's healing and see God's healing for those who've been divorced in our community. And lastly, we're going to end the series with God's own story of divorce and the power of resurrection and forgiveness. So I'm going to end this way with a prayer so we can truly think and prepare, and the band's going to come up, and we'll just end with some response. Lord, um, oh, man, this is so difficult. There's so many what-ifs. There's so much emotion connected to this. There's so much pain and hurt, and and also our culture just tells us everything but what you say. And then a lot of us, Lord, have been in churches that have been, well, downright abusive and have used the Word of God as a weapon, and others of us have never thought of this. And so, Lord, we as as a family come before you, and we acknowledge again you're the head of this family. We pray a few things. Number one, Lord Jesus, we pray, forgive us when we've messed up. Lord, for some people here, they need to admit they've sinned. Help them do that, and I pray for new life. For others, they found freedom they never thought they'd have. We pray for that. For the thousand questions that are still out there, we pray you would meet them over time and help this. For all of us, we pray for the ability to forgive, the ability to move on, the ability for Christian hope. We also pray for the lordship of Christ in this church. We are always tempted, Lord, to believe anything but you because it sounds or feels better, but we pray for the lordship of Christ. 
And lastly, I pray in the name of Jesus that nothing demonic or our own human hearts would not distort, invent, cause division, break unity or purity as we reflect and pray on these things. Keep us together. Meet your people, O merciful God. Change us. Give us freedom, hope, love. Help us to see things we have never seen before. I suppose I should say lastly, God, I pray for miracles in this place. I pray for miracles of marriages that are about to go south that you'd save them. I pray for miracles for those who've lost marriages and never think they're ever going to actually have life again. In the name of Jesus, we pray for life. Have mercy on us, we pray, as a community. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you give us your word because you love us and you care for us. Amen.